So uh, I'm here today with Professor Campbell McLaughlin for our second interview for the Eminent Scholars Archive. Um, and so let's just uh, dive right in, shall we? Um, last time we closed with uh, you discussing your time as the Good Heart, a Good Heart uh, Scholar and then your appointment to the 1973 Professorship Chair. Mm. Um, but we left a gap. You had been a uh, professor at the uh, University, um, uh, sorry, Victoria University of Wellington. And uh, where we left off, you had received a, um, a grant, I believe, from the Law Foundation, the New Zealand Law Foundation, that enabled you to do the background research that led to your work on foreign relations law. Yeah. Um, and now you were a uh, fellow at All Souls at Oxford when that happened? Yes. That's right. Um, so those two things came together very nicely. I'd, I'd had the idea for quite a long time that I wanted to try and write a book about foreign relations law. And this sort of connected with my prior experience um, when I was still in practice at Herbert Smith. Uh, a lot of the work that we did, or quite a bit of the work that we did, involved questions relating to the application of international law before English courts. And at, at that stage, even even in um, right up until the early part of the the previous decade, um, twenty ten, really very little work had been done on that topic since F. A. Mann himself, whom, I, whom as I've mentioned, I knew, uh, who wrote a little book uh, in the mid eighties called uh, Foreign Affairs in English Courts. Um, so I'd always thought it was a topic that was crying out for development. Um, and in fact, shortly after I decided to leave full-time practice and go into um, academic life, uh, the wonderful Finola O'Sullivan, formerly the commissioning editor of law here at uh, CUP, um, she very much encouraged me to take that as a theme and, and contracted me to do so, but then other projects intervened and I never got to it. Uh, so... Uh, then I decided to apply for the New Zealand Law Foundation Distinguishing Fellow, Distinguished Fellowship, um, which is, was a lovely scheme in the sense that it just gave you a, a fund which enabled you both to do some international travel um, and also, in my case, I used a decent chunk of it to hire a wonderful research uh, junior research fellow to help me on the project because I knew at that point that it was going to be a very big project, both kind of big intellectually since so little work had been done really trying to work out what the field was. It was a, it, it, it was a mess, really, doctrinally, uh, and since there hadn't been a book for so long, one really had to start again from first principles structurally. Um, but secondly... Because I got the money out of New Zealand in particular, I decided that this book should not be limited to a comparison between international law and English law, but had to include the sort of cognate Commonwealth jurisdictions. And actually that turned out, although it was a lot more work, it turned out to be very worthwhile because it demonstrated, uh, it made it a much richer project and it sort of demonstrated that actually Commonwealth jurisdictions had a lot more in common in this field than one might have thought. Um, so then, because I had a sabbatical coming up, I had applied f 
on the encouragement of Vaughan Lowe, a friend of mine who was then uh, the Chichely Professor of International Law at Oxford. Um, I'd applied to the college for a visiting fellowship there, really having no particular idea apart from all the things that one knows sort of apocryphally about all souls, what that experience would be like. Proved to be uh, a brilliant combination. Um, all souls, after all, you know, the College of Blackstone, um, uh, you were kind of living and breathing the sort of development of English law as well as international law there. Um, but also, uh, to their credit, they have this extraordinarily well-developed visiting fellowship program. They're very, very well set up. At any given time, there'll be a dozen scholars, all in different, working in different fields. In fact, in the time that I was there, almost all of the other scholars were working rather intimidatingly to, to me on a um, joint research project on the evolution of human cognition, um, which made foreign relations law seem really very uh, small beer in comparison, but they were wonderful people to get to know. So it was a great place to be, and because it's an extraordinary place to a college which has so many eminent professors and no students. Uh, it is, it's a college where the atmosphere really propels one to produce research. That's what the whole, the sole justification of the place really. Um, so, so that was a wonderful experience. I made a lot of progress on the book and uh, it took a little bit longer once I came back to New Zealand to complete it, but I did eventually complete it and publish it in, 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 uh, in 2014. And it proved to be, I think, good timing, although I couldn't have foreseen that. At the time that I did the work, this was a sort of regarded as a rather obscure area, full of these bizarre and apparently anachronistic doctrines, like the Act of State Doctrine, for example, uh, but then those, partly as a result of um, things like the UK's military interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then even more so as a result of Brexit, the whole question of the relationship between international law and English law and the exercise of the foreign relations power became highly, highly controversial in this country uh, and was, of course, litigated right up to the... Um, Supreme Court on a number of occasions, and and I was um, and I was able then, based on the research that I'd done, to to intervene in the um, the academic debate about that, which very kindly um, the judges of the Supreme Court um, then cited in their in, in their judgments. So um, that 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 was an example of where you know you do academic work essentially sort of greenfield work, not, not quite knowing what impact it's going to have. You can never predict that. Um, but it did prove, in fact, to be, to, to be quite impactful um, because of circumstances which none of us could have foreseen, but which uh, proved that this whole question is really rather an important one. Indeed. Um, and now, you, the, the, at the same time, the same year that was published, 2014, mm. you were also... Um, uh, Stalin residence at the New York um, the University Center for Transnational Litigation, Arbitration, mm. and Commercial Law. Mm. Uh, so that that was um, really picking up on a different strand of my my work, I guess. 
Um, so um, for a long time, again, going back to my experience in practice at Herbert Smith, I'd had this great interest in the transformation of the field of private international law through the uh, practical experience of international litigation or transnational litigation, if you like. In other words, essentially litigating commercial disputes uh, in cases that engage the interests of more than one state. Um, And so, as is apparent from my list of publications, even while I was at Herbert Smith, I wrote quite a lot of early articles about that, on those sort of themes, exploring in particular the way in which the courts sought to respond to the sort of challenges of globalisation, if you like, in in trying to make their remedies more effective in a cross-border manner. Um, So I've written quite a lot about that, and then I also became very involved in trying to make constructive law reform proposals. We had a wonderful committee of the International Law Association on International Civil and Commercial Litigation, um, which did some very innovative work in the 90s under the chairmanship of the late great um, Professor Peter Nye of Australia. But it had a wonderful group of of scholars from from around the world who participated in that. Um, So through that side, the private international law side, I guess I'd got to know Linda Silberman at NYU Law School very well. Um, and through her also Franco Ferrari, who coordinates the centre that you mentioned. So as well as knowing the public international lawyers there rather well, um, Jose Alvarez in particular is a close friend, um, uh, I had this entree in private international law. So they'd written to me and asked me uh, whether I could come and spend some time with them. Again, another fantastic experience, really, quite a short experience, but a wonderful one that's a a law school which has created a, such a dynamic research community, really. I mean, the faculty seminars are so popular, they practically have to sell tickets to them. Um, and um, so just to be able to dip into that um, was was a great privilege. And, and you know, there were aspects of the foreign relations law book that um, were of interest more on the private law side. In particular, I gave some talks about the role of the foreign state in international civil and commercial litigation, uh, which was one of the topics that I'd um, also gone into in, in the book, both as a claimant where a state sues for recovery of state assets uh, in domestic courts or uh, trying to use domestic remedies for enforcement of security or environmental um, objectives, and, of course, when it's sued as defendant and in applying the restrictive doctrine of state immunity and the like. Right. Hmm. And uh, you then um, spent some time as a research fellow at the, and I won't try to pronounce it, they, they, shortened, they shortened it to the KFG um, Law Center in Berlin. Yeah. Um, so that's again back on the public international law side. Um, this is a wonderful, another wonderful experience in my life. I've really been, that's one of the great things about academic life, I think, is that it does present these opportunities for collaboration. Um, so that 
was a group which had been put together by Georg Nolter, then, who was then Professor of International Law, Public International Law at Humboldt, now judge on the International Court, together with his colleagues, Professor Heike Krieger at the Freie Universität, which of course had been established in the post-war period in West Berlin, and um, Professor Andreas Zimmermann out of Potsdam. The German Science Council has this wonderful scheme a colleague, Forschungsgruppe, which just means a group of uh, colleagues gathered together in, into a scientific for a scientific inquiry. Which is the FG portion the of the KFG, KFG, short form. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the nice thing about it, they're very hard to get because they're rather well-funded. And the hard thing is to convince the Science Council that your project is worthwhile. But once you've done that, provided you keep to their requirements in terms of the makeup of the group, which is broadly 50% German, 50% not, uh, foreigners, uh, and then a spread from um, junior research fellows up, up to more senior people, um, you can pretty much do what you like. Um, and to me, I think it's a wonderful model because um, essentially it brought together a fascinating group of people under this theme, international rule of law, rise or decline, which of course one could interpret pretty much how one liked. The only formal requirement was to participate in two seminars every week. Otherwise, everyone was left to get on with their own research. But when we then collected up at the end of I happened to be there at the end of the first five-year period in the application for renewal. When we collected up everything that had been done in that time, it was really an extraordinary record of high-quality um, of high-quality research in public international law. And of course, being in Germany, um, it was very thoroughly done. Um, the, the people came pre prepared, very prepared, having read each other's papers to comment on them. And that was where I began the work which I'm this week completing, which was my um, decision to take another look at the principle of systemic integration in international law, which I'd been privileged to give a label to and, and articulate at the time of the work that I did in collaboration with, um, at the request of the International Law Commission back at the time of the study group on fragmentation, to look at that 20 years later and see what had been done with it, not just by courts and tribunals, although that was an important part of it, um, but also um, by states in the way in which they had, in framing new treaties, sought to better integrate, coordinate their, all these massive, different, potentially conflicting uh, uh, rules of international law into some kind of coherent system. And I think when I started that project in Berlin, I had something reasonably um, modest in mind. It's still modest in terms of I don't make any grand claims for it, but it did turn out to be a very large, challenging research project because for two reasons. Firstly, I, it became apparent that the principle had exerted a much greater influence across a panoply of different international courts and different exercises of treaty making. 
which to say anything useful meant sucking in a huge amount of data, not to speak of the scholarly literature, which was even more extensive. Uh, but also for, for another good reason, really, which was that my colleagues in the group encouraged me to be more ambitious. Um, I guess my instinct, since we all kind of start from a background is, and the common lawyer's background tends to be what they what the Germans probably call inductive reasoning. You know, you, you, you start from looking at the cases and then work out what the principle is from the cases. Um, they said, well, sure, do all of that, but... Um, you can't really write something about this in a book-level scale project without also trying to consider a bit more deductively or, dare I say it, philosophically what this means for our understanding of what the international legal system is and how it operates. And I never claimed to be a legal philosopher. So, of course, I found this somewhat intimidating. But in the end, um, I they were right. Um, um, the, the, it was fine for the International Law Commission Study Group just to assert in a sentence international law is a legal system. But if you're writing a, an academic monograph, which takes that as a as premise, you have to unpick and defend what it is you mean by that. And so in the end, I've actually very, I very much enjoyed that side of the research um, as well. And the great thing about this, or indeed any good piece of legal research, is um, I learned a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know. Um, and that that's what one tries to keep doing all through one's life, is learning new stuff and and rather important at um again a bit like the foreign relations law project but in a different context <sighs> rather important stuff to be articulating right now in a very different way to what the context in which the that debate took place in the early part of the millennium because at that stage the concern was one of luxury namely all these new international courts and tribunals have been established, all these new treaties concluded, and everybody thought, oh my God, the system is just falling apart. It's all fragmenting into its separate bits and people will go their own ways and, and stuff. I mean, that's still a concern, um, but the larger concern today is really, will the centre hold in the sense of the participation of, widespread participation of states as a whole in operating the multilateral system? Um, and in that context, understanding the system that we have created, trying to articulate how it operates, the value of it, and its capacity both to stabilise in terms of providing a framework within which the, the agreements and disagreements of states can take place, but also facilitating orderly change, it seems to me is actually a rather, rather important and um, there are all sorts of different ways of doing that but trying to do it in a rather focused way actually looking at the evidence um, which is what's made the project so painstaking um, it seemed to me hopefully will be found to be a solution anyway it's um, the book is the manuscript is there will be delivered to the publishers at the end of September and 
others will have to judge whether it's a useful contribution, but um, it's, it's nearly there. Well, fair enough. Mm. Um, and so having, having discussed, of course, these, um, these various chairs that you were involved with, and, and, and more fascinatingly, the, the intellectual work that you did while occupying them, mm. uh, this, of course, takes us to the point where um, you, um, I, I guess, did you retire from the University, of, uh, the Victoria University of Wellington, or did you uh, to come here as a Goodhart Fellow, no. Or, or no? Um, but just to complete the story of your academic career. Sure, uh, sure. No, so, I mean, I guess I gave the best years of my life probably to Victoria, um, which is my alma mater, and I still feel very, uh, I feel very attached to it. And subject to their wishes, uh, I would hope to maintain connection. Um, the, no, this is the, the good heart is simply a visiting position, right. so I took a leave of absence to take it, uh, but I'm still a professor at home. Right. Um, the new development, of course, is that while I was here as, as, as Goodhart Professor, the Cambridge faculty decided to advertise, in fact, to re-advertise, um, because there'd been a previous um, round which hadn't resulted in, in, in a, an appointment being concluded. Um, one of the, I think, six or seven um, so-called statutory chairs in law in, in this great university. Um, a chair that was established in 1973, the first holder was Kurt Lipstein, a great private international lawyer, but it's never been, it had never previously been uh, limited to any particular area of law, and the faculty had so we deployed it in different, in different ways. But they just, they had decided in a decision which, of course, in which, of course, I had no part, but was very fortuitous for me to um, specifically focus the, the advertisement this time around on private international law and or international commercial arbitration. That was the way it was described. Um, and the reason for that, the, well, I don't want the faculty will know their own reasons, but one, one reason is that a very remarkable, talented and highly charismatic lecturer here, um, Professor Richard Fentiman, who had taught a signature course on the LLM for many years in international commercial litigation, was retiring. Richard's a friend of mine. And um, so there was a recognition that that was a gap that had to be filled. There are two other wonderful private international lawyers uh, here on the faculty, both of which are friends of mine, Professor Pippa Rogerson, now Master of Keys, and Louise Merritt, Vice Master of Trinity College. So immediately you can see that in my descriptions that they've got pretty heavy jobs elsewhere. So although they're still teaching, they weren't going to be able to devote at this present time all of their energies to, to that. So that was the focus. Um, and I was encouraged to and did decide to apply. And fortunately, uh, the Board of Electors um, elected me. Um, a word about the focus, though, which may be of interest. The, the and or in the middle of that description was very interesting. Um, it it signalled, I suppose, some degree of recognition on the part of the faculty that in addition to what might be called classical private international law, 
an immensely important field and in, in practice and and method of reasoning in the law, which deals with all manner of transnational private law disputes, but which is traditionally focused on the, the resolution of such disputes in national courts, that in parallel to that, we'd seen in the last few decades this huge rise in the use of arbitration as a means of resolving such disputes in the commercial area in particular. Um, and the faculty had not perhaps devoted as much attention to arbitration um, as they had to, as it were, the more well-known area of private international law. But plainly it had become very significant in practice. The students themselves had founded an arbitration club here and, and, and the like. Um, so there's a question what to do about that. Now, um, but in academic life, we tend to work, or many people tend to work in so we're categories. The law operates by means of categories, and probably we couldn't survive if we had to see everything whole the whole time. But it had led to quite a, quite a sort of, as it were, division often between categories. My proposition to the board, which one has to assume they accepted since they um, agreed to elect me, was that we should see the, that I was the guy for the and, <laughs> that we should see the whole field as being a, the field of international dispute resolution and that we should conceive of that as including not just actually private international litigation and international commercial arbitration, but also litigation before public international courts and tribunals, the common factor in all cases being not the substantive law that's applied, but the study of the procedure, study of the process. Um, so, and, you know, in a way, if you look at quite a lot of the work that I've done through my career, the, the earlier work that I talked about um, in the 90s in particular, with, uh, on procedural issues in international commercial litigation, which has very much continued in, for me academically because I've become responsible for the, the procedural chapters, essentially, of um, Dicey, Morris and Collins on the Conflict of Laws, the, the leading common law treatise. Um, then I've done a lot of work in arbitration, in, um, in particular at the ANSTI 2 being responsible for piloting through a report and resolution on the, con the principle of the equality of the parties. Um, in um, international arbitration. Um, so this was a kind of a way of connecting all of that up. Of course, a tall order to try and do that in the course of a single LLM course. One could teach a whole number of courses. Um, and I won't be unsupported in this because the faculty is committed also to hiring an associate professor in the field, which I would warmly welcome. But that the starting point will be to look at the process of an international dispute in procedural terms, as it were, from institution of the claim through to judgment and execution or award and execution. And then in a comparative way at each stage as to how that works out, depending upon your forum, whether you're in a national court or in, in arbitration or before an international court. Um, so that's the plan. 
uh, it would be up to me to deliver that on that plan next year when I come back. Um, and then the idea for that uh, on the research side is to turn that into a book. I don't know why I keep volunteering to write more books, but I, I, I have. Um, I'm not volunteering to write it immediately. But um, in fact, there is a lineage for this or a precedent for this in this great university. Um, there was, a, there was a, another very popular course on the LLM, uh, which focused more on public international litigation before the International Court and so forth, which the late great James Crawford and others had taught on. And in, in a previous era, um, Vaughan Lowe, whom I've already mentioned when he was still at Cambridge, together with John Collier, uh, a private international lawyer here, much loved in the college with which I've been attached here, Trinity Hall, and, and more broadly, had written a book on the settlement of international disputes, which tried to do this. Um, but personally, I think now in contemporary um, right, right now, there is really a gap because to the extent that there are books on international dispute resolution, they tend to be largely institutionally focused. That is to say, they describe you know, what the International Chamber of Commerce looks like or the International Court of Justice or whatever. Um, whereas what I have in mind is something which traces the procedure through. And one of the things that I think I've seen in my life and which I can hopefully make good on in teaching and research is a very much more considerable convergence between process, between the major courts that do international commercial disputes, international arbitration and public international disputes, as we've come to understand that things like Provisional measures, for example, or the problems created by um, competing and overlapping jurisdiction, the problem of lease pendants or evidence or whatever, that essentially the problems are the same, even if the context is different. Uh, so we've seen a convergence around principle, um, and that's what I would want to plan to, exp to explore. So that will all be kicking off in the academic year 24-25. In the meantime, I have to deliver the general course at the Hague Academy in January. Um, so wow. that's my next big challenge. And that, just going back to the general theme of probably, or certainly today's discussion, I've, uh, I've given as my general theme for that um, the topic on the interface between public and private international law. Um, so in 15 lectures and two seminars, I will try and explore that with what is still the most, the most globally international student body of any academic institution, I think. It's the Hague right. Academy. Mm. And of course, that academy being very, very close to you, close to your heart because of it is. every formative experience you had back, um, in, back, in the, back in the 80s as a student. That's right. And it's been with me all through my life. So it's nice to be asked to give a general course because that doesn't, um, 
because there can only be one in each session. So it tends to limit the number of people whom the Academy Curatorium can uh, can invite. Um, and it's an opportunity to... I think there's a difference for myself. People interpret this brief in different ways. Um, the special courses, one which I've given um, back in 2008, are designed essentially to present cutting-edge research on discrete topics. In my case, I, as, as might have been predicted, I, I took the, the, the doctrine of lease pendants in, in international litigation and tried to do exactly what I'm proposing to do for the for this new course, look at how that worked out through um, commercial litigation, arbitration, investment arbitration, and before public national um, courts and tribunals. Um, so people do wonderful topics. But the general course is something different because... It's meant to be a survey course, and my feeling at least is that it should be summative, which is to say you should, one should be trying to impart to the students. It's not a replacement from do, for doing a, you know, your, your basic course on international law in your home institution. All the students after all already have law degrees. It's more about giving them the benefit, if it be a benefit, of your own perspective. on. So it should be a summative thing. And I think some of the best courses, I'm thinking, for example, of um, Dame, Dame Rosalind Higgins's wonderful general course, um, do that. They 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 uh, really give in the space of um, a relatively compact compass um, her views on what international law is and how we use it, as she as she as she put it. So that's my hope is to try and draw draw that together. Um, but of course, there is a limit too what you can do in that space of time. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if I look at the pattern of your of your publications and, and the way the development of ideas present themselves, just chronologically going mm-hmm. through, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do see how where you've ended up had all of its roots and foundations in your focus on, for example, remedies earlier on. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think you've kind of Lay that bear with, with, with the two strands, the public side and the private side. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder how, how much your dissertation and your work on, on the acceptance of customary law yeah. fed into any of that. Well, um, it, it's a funny thing. I picked that topic, um, I think, because at the most abstract possible level, I've always been interested at the way in which um, systems of law interact. And I know that sounds rather abstract. In reality, of course, it's not. It's it's highly becomes rapidly highly concrete. That's central to <laughs> everything that the else I've done since exactly. But this was a rather particular application for it, and um, did have a slightly different route at that point um, in New Zealand. New Zealand was just kind of waking up, as it's now done in spades, to its to the legal implications of its Maori heritage. 
Um, but I was also conscious and in part inspired by my great teacher of private international law and comparative law, Tony Angelo, that there had been a similar development in the rather different different context of the um, emergence into independence of the Pacific Island states. Um, and so I picked that topic, the interaction between customary law of indigenous peoples and the introduced state law system, really because of my fascination with what was then, well, it's still now called um, legal pluralism, the idea that um, the state doesn't have a monopoly on um, the rules by which social groups conduct themselves. So I wasn't trying to, wouldn't be so presumptuous as to try to understand the substantive rules um, themselves. And in any event, I rapidly came to the view that it's a mistake to think of indigenous legal systems in in the same way that we would of a state legal system um, because they because of their nature. You know, they are more or less incommensurable, are they not? There's um... that, that's right. But then they're driven into um, engagement with each other, and it was the processes of engagement that was what really fascinated me. Um, and funnily enough, because maybe everything in life really is connected, um, at that time, um, even before he came to Cambridge, James Crawford uh, was uh, working as, as an Australian Law Reform Commissioner and produced a groundbreaking study on the recognition of Aboriginal customary law in Australia. And because he was always so generous with his time, I remember sitting with him for a whole day here in, here in Cambridge with two other New Zealand colleagues, both of whom went on to become great professors themselves in, in different but cognate fields, discussing all, these, all this stuff. So, um, yeah, so I did all of that work. I never published the PhD. I should have done, but I went straight into practice at the time and got distracted. There would um, be no time. There was no there <laughs> was, solicitors for him, would there? There wasn't. Um, and but it's it's always stayed with me uh, because that um, that early work about interaction, even though in a very different context, uh, kind of fed into everything that I've kind of subsequently done, both in private international law, which, if you like, is kind of formalised legal pluralism because it's all about the interaction between, in this in its case, national legal systems. And in a way, the work on foreign relations law as well, because there's still that's also about interaction between legal systems. That's, that's the best way to understand it, I think. Um, so, very, very different context, but um, but, a, but, a, but a similar preoccupation. And of course, um, in the meantime, that debate has very much moved centre stage at, at home in, in, in New Zealand um, as the country and the, including the Law Commission there sort of grapple more comprehensively with how to 
and integrate um, concepts derived from Maori um, customary law in, into the national legal system, which was it otherwise originally inherited the state legal system being and being having been inherited um, from from English law, although in turn massively reshaped by the actions of a domestically competent legislature over a long period, but you've still got that process of interaction. Hmm. And something you you bring up in your work is, I I mean, I suppose it is what you refer to as systemic integration. Hmm. Um, The notion that as things change, you need... There are no simple, large categories that work. You need to cut everything up. Yes, <laughs> in, in, a, in, a, in almost a, um, if, I, if I'm going to understand it correctly, uh, with an end, with the ends in mind um, of, 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 of fair settlement, um, it needs to be a system. Yeah. Well, I think isn't this what we do as lawyers? I mean, so it's all about. So there's there's two things here. What one is. Um, the only way in which we can make sense of law, uh, in my view, is by reasoning on the relationship between rule and principle. In other words, I mean, of course, you don't need to do that all the time because the legal system would break down if we had to go back to first principles all the time. But in any hard case, uh, even in in one which is purely within a domestic legal system, it will often boil down to what an apparent conflict between rules in which only by referring to the working out what you think the underlying principle is and what that which underlies the rule and what that indicates about the way in which that conflict is to be resolved, um, can, you, can you get to an answer? So, so that's one side of it. But then the other side of it, which I think is equally important, and that was a big part of my work with the, on the Foreign Relations Law Project, um, and it just informs my approach because it's the same thing with the systemic integration thing, is say, so, but let's just take Foreign Relations Law first. There, I actually felt that the invocation of these rather generalised doctrines, like the Act of State Doctrine or the notion that uh, the country must speak with one voice on foreign affairs or the the idea of non-justiciability had actually become seriously unhelpful because they were essentially obscurantist they were they they were they were doctrines they were excuses for non-law as i called them in the book um and that the only way to start solving issues on the interface between domestic law and international law was by disaggregating by breaking up Working out what the real problems were at the distinct at the at, at the granular level, um, and then following that through. And actually, just going back to the debate we that we just had about customary law, I learned that in in many ways, but in in in, in one way very formatively from James Crawford's approach and his customary uh, Aboriginal customary law project. Uh, which had become uh, run aground under previous law commissioners because they tried to conceive it at a very generalised level. And James just said very pragmatically and rightly in my view, well, let's go and see what real problems Aboriginal people are encountering as a result 
of the non-recognition of their uh, indigenous customary law practices and what how what solutions we can propose so he went in other words highly inductively and pragmatically to 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 do that um so and it's really been the same thing with the systemic integration thing you know i um, i didn't invent the underlying concept at all um was already there in the vienna convention and it's in fact there in many earlier authorities but i gave it a label principle of systemic integration what i discovered sort of as it were slightly to my um horror in the intervening period is that it had become something of a slogan that was very frequently invoked um, as if it was self-explanatory. Um, but of course it's not. I mean, it, it does give expression to the idea that when we <clears throat> interpret any given rule in international law, one of the things the interpreter must do is to take account of the surrounding relevant rules within the total legal universe of international law. Um, but it doesn't tell you when and how to do that. It can't, it can't do, the principle on its own can't do that work. So part of the point of the book was to, is, has been to sort of drill down into that and work out when you do that and how you do it and to look at the different contexts in which it's been done and make an assessment of, of it. So, but I don't think there's anything so, I mean, the fact that I've been trying to do this I mean, in the in the international law context, is is perhaps um, distinctive, but I do think this is actually part of what just good legal reasoning is all about. Um, a good um, lawyer, as as I was was taught by Lawrence Collins, must try to be both a great generalist and a great specialist. I may have said this in the last interview. But if I didn't, I'll say it now. You didn't. Okay. Uh, this did not come okay. So, so uh, um, his 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 point being with which I agree that if you to be to be if you're a generalist without real specialism, you can, as it were, be a menace to humanity because you don't really know enough about any particular field to be that useful. But equally dangerous and much more common in the current environment, given the highly specialised world in which we live, is is the narrow specialist who has no general perspective on what he or she is, is, is doing. Um, and that's dangerous because then you can't see the wider significance of your own, your own field or how it fits in. Um, and I actually think, people say, oh, well, you know, you know, the law is so complex you can't you can't expect to get across all of it and of course that's true at the level of saying you know when you can't carry in your head um, all the details of all legislation of all countries and you can't do, and you certainly can't do that in in the in public international law either but I don't think that that's what legal reasoning has ever been about actually it's it, it because the purpose of legal education and of is to instill um, good legal reasoning and a sufficient understanding of the structure within which that operates so that you can solve legal problems. It isn't to stuff your brain with, full of as much detailed rules as, as, as possible, even though many law, school, law students may 
feel that like that's what's happening while they're studying. And um, and and that is all about an ability to problem solve in part through the process that I'm I'm attempting perhaps poorly to describe, which is identifying your specific issue. That's the hardest thing always. And then solving that issue in part through using the standard techniques of um, argumentative reasoning, um, but in part also by working out how your particular legal rule fits within the larger framework of... um, Because in the end, after all, what is law but the, the means by which human society chooses to regulate itself. It's not, um, if, it, if it were unbearably complex, it, it, it could never survive. One has to be able to explain the doctrines of the law by reference to the broader principles which they're there to perform. I mean, I've always understood the legal system as, as necessary because we can't hold everything in our heads because we can't set everything out in advance. Mm. There's always going to be some new problem that crops up, perhaps that no one anticipated. Mm. Um, perhaps someone anticipated but could not do anything about because there's no epistemological way to set it out. So you have a process and there's someone who actually gets to decide. Mm. And, and I mean, how else could you do it? Um, yeah, and, and of course, why public international law is challenging in that respect is that I think we're all of us educated first in our national legal system and the accounts of the system that we tend to get when we learn law in a national legal system domestically are institutional. In other words, and you can see them, you know, you can go and visit Parliament, you can sit in the Supreme Court, you can see a hierarchy of courts all the way up from the lowliest magistrate's court to the top. Um, You can see a similar um, hierarchical structure in the way in which legislation and delegated legislation and rulemaking is set up. Um, and so we we kind of imbibe this idea that um, what's important about a legal system is an institutional structure to solve problems as they arise. And I'm not denying that that, that aspect uh, is, is important. But you can't explain public international law on that basis because uh, it has many things which look like an institutional structure and which then on further examination, fairly basic examination, plainly aren't. They don't meet, they don't operate in the same way. So then how do we explain the systemic attributes of public international law? It seems to me, and the view I've expressed and developed in the new book is we can only explain it as a as a system of discursive legal reasoning. In other words, it offers us the tools by which states can solve their problems by reference to law. And so understanding the reasoning process is the key to understanding, this is in turn, understanding the system. And that's why I think the principle of systemic integration is so important, because it's not the only tool that we have, but it is the only tool that we have that knits um, individual rules into a system. Right. And, and, um, and in fact, Martin Koskinyemi himself 
wrote in the fragmentation study group report that um, the rules themselves, of course, they'd just be words written on a piece of paper if, if, they, if they weren't collectively imagined as part of an operating system. Um, they, 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 so, and it's, so in other words, all law is about the way in which it's, the, the, the way in which it's applied, actually. And I think also we tend perhaps to also neglect that dimension. People might say this is a rather common lawyer's view, but I don't think, in, it, in fact, it is unique to, I don't think it's unique to a common law perspective. We tend to imagine um, that we can understand and interpret rules, in again, in a vacuum. And in international law, international law abounds with detailed commentaries on how to interpret particular provisions of particular uh, international treaties and the like. And that's very valuable work. But in reality, international law doesn't speak until we've got a problem to which we have to apply it. So, in fact, the process of interpretation of rules always takes place against a background of the application of those rules to a particular fact pattern, which has provoked an issue of interpretation or more than one issue of interpretation that then has to be resolved. Everything takes place against the facts of life because that's why we have law. Yeah. I mean, that does come across to me as as rather common law lawyer-like. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, but then at least in the the International Court of Justice hasn't hasn't hesitated to say the same thing when it uh, when it's been appropriate for for it to do so in the resolution of international disputes. Um, so I think, um, but it is striking to me. It was striking to me when writing the new book how, despite the enormous quantity of great secondary literature on public international law, how little attention had been really paid to um, the claims process in terms of working out what that actually means um, for the application and interpretation of of, of the law. Very little written about that at all, surprisingly. Lots written, of course, about you know, the procedural stages of a case or whatever, that, you know, the great commentaries on the statute of the International Court, and etc. But that's not really what I mean. What I mean is how you go about identifying your legal issue, identifying the potential universe of international rules that are applicable in the relations between the parties, interpreting and then applying those rules to your fact pattern. Um, and yet that's what we do every day. So, um, so I, I think we've um, covered in, in fairly good detail, albeit in rather circuitous fashion, your 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 intellectual the, the pathways of your intellectual uh, mm-hmm. development. Mm-hmm. Um, you wanted to um, discuss um, some of your thoughts on investment arbitration and the opportunities for the future. Mm. Um, well, I guess the one I can't uh, again. I can't remember whether we did this in the first interview. 
But the one piece in this jigsaw puzzle that we haven't perhaps fully fleshed out is the contribution that I've been privileged to make both academically and then subsequently as arbitrator in the in the investment field. Uh, I can't remember whether we talked about this much in the first two. Uh, we, we talked about how you had, had worked as an arbitrator, and, mm-hmm. uh, but, but we had not really gone into yeah. in great depth into what, that, what the significance of that was. Yeah. Well, um, it seems hard to imagine now, given the huge profile that investment arbitration seemingly has and the interest in it and the development in the number of cases, but... In the early and mid-2000s, the field was very much in its infancy. It had, it had existed only on paper. So there was the great exit convention framed up by the World Bank in 1965. Lots of states had signed it. But there'd only ever been a handful of cases. Uh, and then uh, there were some pivotal developments in the latter half of the previous century and early part of the present century, which sort of unlocked it, its potential, in particular by marrying the jurisdictional requirements of the Exit Convention with the mass of bilateral investment treaties that had been concluded by, by states, which cont- often contained a promise of arbitration. And the, 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 the theory which was espoused in some very influential early awards was that was a standing offer directly to the private uh, person or corporation which that person if they met the other jurisdictional criteria could accept by filing the claim and then there began to be this great increase in claims Um, I'd never done such a claim when I was in practice although I had been involved in many disputes between states or SOEs and and, um, private parties, but they generally all had a contractual background. Um, However, um, two former assistants of mine, now both very eminent practitioners in their own right, um, Matthew Weiniger and Larry Shaw, proposed to me not long after I went back into academic life, look, this field's beginning to become known, and uh, but there's no book, no modern book, on what these very broadly um, drawn provisions in these investment treaties, fair and equitable treatment, protection from expropriation, full protection and security, actually mean. Um, so why don't we write one? And we thought in all our innocence that this would be a good, worthy project. For me, of course, it was uh, it fitted very much with my interests precisely because it was at the interface between public and private international law. That's what the whole field is about. It's about the interface between private corporations and states governed by treaty, but then exercised through essentially a private mechanism, arbitration. Um, so we wrote the book. Um, really as a greenfield exercise. Very hard to believe now, but when we published, when we were writing it, when we published in 2007, there was almost no contemporary secondary literature on, on the uh, topic. 
Um, so we had to go back to first principles and then study the then relatively small number of cases that had been then delivered and try and make sense of it all. Um, so we published that book with Oxford University Press. Again, the timing was right because there was sudden upswing in demand, considerable interest in the field, and um, fortunately the book was kindly received by uh, both the academic and the practicing an arbitral community and became a standard reference work. So, and then at that point, um, Lord Cook of Thorndon passed away. Now, Lord Cook was a remarkable common law jurist. He'd been both the president of our Court of Appeal at a time when we had no Supreme Court in New Zealand and that was only the right of appeal to the Privy Council. Uh, he was then himself appointed to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council and the House of Lords, rather extraordinary for a New Zealander. Um, anyway, he then in retirement had been one of the four nominated New Zealanders nominated to the list of arbitrators at the Exit Centre in Washington. So he'd been very kind to me when I came back to New Zealand, nominated me for the American Law Institute, etc., etc. Then he sadly passed away, but then we're all of us mortal. Um, and so I plucked up my courage and went and asked Dame Sean Elias, Chief Justice, whether she would be prepared to recommend me to replace him on the list. And she kindly said that she would. Um, and she, at that point, very much... Um, took a general overview of all judicial or quasi-judicial appointments, including made by New Zealand. So the centre accepted that. That could easily have just been something nice to put on your CV, but not a reality. But it coincided with a view in the exit secretariat, strongly taken by the then acting secretary-general, Nasib Ziade, a very remarkable Libyan, um, that he should, or the centre should, broaden the field of arbitrators, and in particular for the sort of what what amounts to a second tier in the uh, exit system. No general right of appeal, but there is a right of review on a closed list of grounds, essentially procedural grounds or excessive jurisdiction. So um, he took a risk on me. Um, and I was appointed to various of these so-called annulment committees. And I learned a huge amount through that process by, by sitting with some very remarkable experienced jurists, notably Steve Schwabel, former American judge on the International Court, and then <coughs> and Peter, and Peter Tomka, who's still the sitting judge on the International Court, and others. Um, and then I began to, to chair myself, and then I broke through what effectively was a glass floor for me in the sense that of being appointed to the under to tribunals hearing the underlying substantive cases rather than this second tier of review, which of course was a very <coughs> limited um, kind of exercise. Um, so that came to be a rather significant. Um, sort of second 
practical aspect of, of my, my work in international law. Um, fitted very well with the academic work because, uh, at least as arbitrator, you can control the timetable in a way that if you're counsel, you can't. Um, I was sitting with some fascinating people, many of whom themselves were academics, um, and it, 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 for me, it, since I was very much based in New Zealand, young, then young family, um, but it provided the opportunity to, to travel and sit in, in on these hearings. Um, and of course, I was able to bring to them, I suppose, my, my dual expertise in public and private international law and the fact that I'd had prior practical experience um, was, was valuable because I kind of knew, I knew the process, I knew what council were going to be on about and the kind of issues that would, would, would arise in practice. So that's continued and still continues uh, today. I've always kept a very firm lid on the number of appointments that I accept because the day job is, is my top priority. Um, and I don't in any event think that this is or should be a volume business. You know, it's, it's, it's about trying to make a contribution where you can uh, to the successful resolution of disputes and where the opportunity arises to try to clarify the law along the way, but not trying to, you know, just accept uh, every appointment that's thrown at you. Um, so it's one has to keep turning them down, and uh, but, but that's fine. Um, so and that then also led to me being asked to when Meg Kinnear was brought in as the new Secretary General of Exit, fantastic Canadian appointment. Um, she and I together sort of relaunched with Oxford University Press the Exit Review. The journal. The, the journal. Um, we, we just had a board meeting this morning um, and we set out to, to try and make that, to make use a common law analogy, the, 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 the law quarterly review of the investment field. Um, in the sense, we wanted very high quality material from as broad a range of contributors, irrespective of the views that were expressed, subject only to the requirement that they survive double-blind peer review. Um, so that's... <coughs> and then that we've brought out a new edition of the, of the, of the treatise, um, a decade after the first. Um, so that's been another field oh, of... Sorry, sorry, which treatise? This is the book I did with... Um, Matthew Weininger and Larry Shaw, ah, okay, International yeah. Investment Arbitration Substantive Principles, um, which is the prescribed text, in fact, for the Cambridge Investment Law course, um, but is seemingly still rather widely used in in, in cases, although I, I deprecate having it cited in front of me, um, but um, apparently it is widely used in other cases. Um, so we've tried to make a contribution uh, in that way, and then it led when I was elected to the Institute to the invitation to serve as rapporteur of a working commission of the Institute on the equality of the parties before international investment tribunals, and to try to do a similar thing that we tried to do in the book on the substantive principles to looking at procedural principles, basically. Well, in particular, looking at the procedure through the lens of the sort of the meta principle of the equality of the parties, um, which resulted in 
in the adoption of a, a resolution of the Institute back in 2019, which fortunately, because the Institute is, as one would hope, full of highly experienced but also highly opinionated um, members, that this resolution did garner the support of the vast majority uh, and was adopted in plenary. Um, and there again, what we try to do in collaboration with a wonderful group of the, the Commission who took a, took a, a very active role in the process was to, again, strike that balance between explaining the, the general principle of equality and what that might mean in this context, but then trying to do the granular thing of <coughs> looking at every stage in the process and working out what the implications of that general principle might be at every stage from the assumption of jurisdiction, hearing issues arising from third party participation, issues of evidence, um, obtaining evidence from um, uh, the, the state as well as the, the private party, um, timing issues all the way through the process to, to um, execution of the award. So my interest in the field was really sparked by this interface between private and public. Um, I've never wanted to be seen and don't regard myself as being kind of solely a specialist in that field. I don't think it it uh, it sh one should be. I think you have to see that field as um, being part of um, a larger system of dispute resolution, which draws, in its case, upon both public and private international law. Um, but it has been undeniably an important um, part of my, my life, both academically and um, as the opportunities arisen as, um, as arbitration in practice. And in particular, in, in recent years, I've very much focused on the practical side on um, accepting appointments just as presiding arbitrator. Um, in part because it's it's all too easy, rightly or wrongly, often wrongly, to be typecast in that field as being disposed towards claimants or respondents. And to me, uh, as I'm sure to to many, it, it's um, it's terribly important to be seen as being completely impartial. And the best way of doing that is. Uh, to be appointed as the presiding arbitrator. On the other hand, it comes with a great deal of work um, because the presiding arbitrator has the responsibility to um, to, to guide the process um, and also is normally called upon to prepare the first draft of awards and decisions, even though they then become a matter of deliberation and hopefully consensus. Not that one can achieve that in, in every case, but one always should always try as hard as one can to to achieve consensus um, of the tribunal as a whole. Right. Mm. Uh, and and going forward, what what do you believe are the future opportunities in in, in these realms of, of arbitration and private and public international law? Um. So. We talked a little bit about that in the specific level because I'm fortunate to have been given this great opportunity to develop and, and deliver this new 
program here and hopefully that will in turn provide students who come through the LLM um, degree course here in Cambridge with themselves with an opportunity. Um, so in the specific level, that, that I guess I'm focused on that. Um, more generally, uh, and, and, I'm, and I've got, also got the opportunity of trying to put all of this together, as, as we've discussed in the, um, in the general course of the academy, to try to explain what it really means to think about the interface between public and private international law. It's another one of those things that's kind of easy to say, um, not always so easy to, to deliver on, um, but I think terribly important because I think the world as a, as a social system is not divided neatly between states on the one hand and private individuals and corporations on the other. Um, the world we live in encompasses both um, and we have to understand how the interactions work and probably, well I think certainly, the structural insights which each of public and private international law can offer that um, each only offer half of the picture. Um, so I think it's, it's an important thing to do. But more generally speaking, I mean, I'm not sure that lawyers are always so good at looking to the future and in particular looking to the longer term future. Because, and, and at the moment, particularly so, because perhaps every generation of humanity feels like they're the generation that's facing some existential crisis, but certainly I feel like we are. Um, and uh, we tend to lurch from, you know, one short-term crisis to another uh, as a species, partly because we are, as I said, we're all mortal. We all only have a certain lifespan. We don't necessarily think much beyond that. But I think um, it's not only lawyers, but I think lawyers have some kind of responsibility to think about the, the systems which they have designed against their ability to contribute over the longer term to humanity and the, and, and the world in which we live. Um, and that means both working out what it is that we have achieved, something I tried to go into in my Goodhart lecture this, this year, um, because I think it's all too easy to take for granted the the system that we that we've got, but it's kind of a remarkable thing that we've created in, in public international law in the space essentially of a single generation. And then to assess how fit it is for the challenges that we face and and what we might do about that. Um, do I sense within this answer um, a worry that the system we have set up is actually fragile? I think all systems are fragile because um in the end, they only work because people believe in them. I mean, we know this. We know this in the long durée of the history of law. Um, and when I gave the Goodhart Lecture, I started with that great quote from Arnold Toynbee, which nobody really reads anymore, but who had many great insights, where he sort of says, you know, in general, the process of legal codification reaches its peak long after 
the the um, the great ideas are being generated, and when the legislators of the day are in the in the hopeless um, fighting hopeless rearguard action against the forces of destruction, and, and the reason for that is that behind all law is a belief system that it's valuable that that the best way of organising human society is through some form of legal regulation. Um, and once that belief system goes, or the circumstances, to use the language of the UN Charter, the, the circumstances that permit the application of law, once that, that goes, then what you're left with is, you know, the di- digest of Justinian high and dry uh, and no, no actual application for it on the ground. There's always the risk that's, the, that's certainly a risk um, with international um, law that a system that um, has been not the only explanation for the way in which the world operates, but a, a very, very important and valued um, uh, contribution um, to the way in which the world operates, if if it's continuously undercut and um, um, uh, eroded, um, simply simply ceases to operate. I actually don't think that's the prospect that we that we face. I think it's um, I think that's overblown. I think for every um, piece of evidence of disintegration. We equally see plenty of evidence of integration. Uh, in fact, the current, although it's only, it's only an example, the, the resolution of the General Assembly to ask the International Court to deliver an advisory opinion on the implications of climate change is in many ways a touchstone example of that. It couldn't have come about without the vast majority of the world's states agreeing that they wanted this. Um, and the essential question being asked is a question of systemic integration. States don't need to know what the words of the UNFCCC or the or the Law of the Sea Convention say. What they want to know is how, when you put this all together with the overarching general principles that animate the whole field, um, what that tells us about what states should actually be doing. It's all about systemic integration and the law and practice, actually. So I don't think we need to be pessimistic, but nevertheless, we certainly need to be clearly articulating um, the function, the importance of the function of law in the international community, to paraphrase the late uh, Hirsch Um And I think that's probably not a bad place to... To park this, is it? I agree, John. I think um, I can't, we can't, we can never do better than uh, Hirsch, and um, that's uh, it's a wrap. Well, thank you very kindly for your time, Professor. It's a pleasure.